All right, while everybody's finding their seat, we are going to, uh, I'll give you a couple of announcements. Uh, Sunday morning is going to be our Christmas Eve service, but instead of doing it Sunday night, we're going to do it Sunday morning, like we've been doing it for the last uh, several years, and we'll be having the Lord's table at the end of the service. The service is going to be for, uh, I want all the families to come in, we're going to... at the age at which parents believe the kids can come into the auditorium, then we'll have everybody in here because celebrating Christmas and having a special Christmas service is good for families to be together. So that's what we're, we're going to do, and we've done that in the past. So that will be for, for a Sunday morning. And I think that's the only announcement. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And uh, one of the things you need to be praying for right now is just to continue to pray for Eager and the small yards in Jatomer. Eager texted me this afternoon that things are tough. They had a uh, drone strike at the air base in Jatomer, which is about 10 miles from his house. My comment was, with the armor of God, 10 miles is as good as 10,000 miles. So, But he's also got a lot going on because he, we just had 15,000 copies of the Promise book printed in Russian and uh, Ukrainian. And now he's been um, contacted by a group that is distributing uh, various uh, packages of aid to civilians who were in the uh, in the z- combat zone areas, and they want to be able to put promise books into the packages that they're taking to these people who are down there. So he's trying to figure out how to how to properly get all that done. So we may be having to print another ten or fifteen thousand before long. I mean, it's just amazing how God is using this. So we can be very thankful for that. All right, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will pray. Father, what a privilege it is that we get to serve you, that we get to be used by you in the process of proclaiming the gospel, that we are partners, as Paul says to the Philippians, partners in the gospel ministry. We're partners with you, and you use us, and it's just a great opportunity to to watch this happen and know that it's not anything that we're going out and doing on our own. Father, we pray for Eager, for his family, for their safety, for others who are in um, various other locations there that have been a part of Uh, ministry of of the Word of God Bible College and Word of God Church in Ukraine. And we just pray that you'd watch over them. And Father, we pray that this uh, war would come to a close and that it would not involve capitulation of the Ukrainians to the Russians, because that would just commit 40 million people to slavery, and it would be horrible. 
So, Father, we pray for them. We pray for us that we might keep our focus on your word, knowing that as our focus is on you, that we do not get engulfed into the cares and distractions and worries of the world around us. And we can relax and have peace. And we pray that you'd help us to understand your word tonight and see how it applies in our own thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, I did not start the uh, slides. There we go. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to push on into, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, push on into the second half of this, of this chapter. And so I want to begin with a bit of review, but first to look at what the focal point of the message is, which is the focal point of the passage itself. Did I not turn? I didn't even... What was going on with my head tonight? So that'll take a couple of seconds for the screen to come on. So the title for the message is, Is My Life an Offering to the Lord? Is my life an offering to the Lord? Because offering and sacrifice is the focal point of our passage in verses 17 and 18. Now I want to start by just reviewing some things and asking what we've learned so far. And one of the first things we've learned is that we interpret a passage, we must interpret it in light of context. And we do that all the time. Every single person here has had things like happen in text messages that you have received where words don't make sense. Things are garbled. You're expecting something to be said, and that's not what's there, and these are odd words, and you look at them, and you know exactly what they intended to say. English is your language. You know the context. You know who you're talking to. You know what you're talking about. And so you can figure it out, even though the word there is completely garbled. And that has lots of application for understanding things related to textual criticism where you have manuscripts where there's different words maybe in this manuscript or that manuscript, all kinds of things. But our brains are adept enough to figure it out, even if it's not looking correct. And we do that because we understand a context. Now, biblical contexts get awfully garbled for a number of reasons. When these were written, there were no verses, there were no chapters, there were no paragraph divisions, there were no periods, commas, colons, semicolons, or brackets, or m dashes, or anything else. There weren't even spaces between the words, and every letter was either an uppercase letter or a lowercase letter. I mean, if you had unchilled documents, then every letter was an uppercase letter. You didn't have uppercase letters for capitalizing certain words. They were just every letter was an uppercase letter. If you had minuscule documents, then every letter's lowercase letter. And you just could look at it and read it without any problems. So you would know because you understand the language. You understand how the language works, you understand the grammar, you understand the syntax, you grow up talking it. And so you look at these things and we figure it out 
and that is contextual. We understand the context. Now, what's happened so often is that because of non-literal ways of interpreting things and ways in which people think that they can allegorize or spiritualize the meaning of a text, that you have people who just have really garbled the meaning of, of Scripture. And so we have to just stop and take some time to look at various things to understand what is actually actually being being said. So I've uh, tried to keep the focus for us on what this epistle is all about because one of the main principles in, in interpretation is understanding what you're talking about. So if you get a text from somebody and you don't understand what they're talking about, you can't figure it out. You think they're talking about going to a movie and they're talking about going out to eat. Well, all of a sudden you're very confused. So you have to understand that broad meaning, the broad theme of something. So when we look at Philippians, the main theme is stated back at the beginning of chapter 1 as Paul talks about what he is thanking God for. And in verse 5 he says that I thank God every time I remember you for your partnership in the gospel ministry. And sometimes I put this as financial partnership because this is a thank you note to the Philippians for their financial contribution to uh, to his ministry. And so everything feeds into that. There are certain sub-themes that are developed in here, and I just want to take us through sort of an outline coming up to this point so that we understand what Paul is saying when he gets down to these uh, two verses in 17 and 18 when he talks about being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith I'm glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, you'll notice in those verses that both verses talk about being glad and rejoicing. They have the same phrase in both both verses. And because the words related to joy are repeated many times in the epistle, there are a number of people who take that as a main theme, but it's not. It is a sub-theme that joy and rejoicing is the result of their participation, the growth and consistency and remaining steadfast in their participation in the gospel ministry. But it's a secondary or tertiary idea. It's not the primary, not the primary idea. So we start off with the salutation when he, Paul and Timothy, and it's important to understand why Timothy's mentioned here. If you've read ahead, you know. Because Paul is giving an example that he's talking about humility in chapter 2. The first example is Christ. The second example is himself. That's what these two verses are about. And then the third example is going to be Timothy. So recognizing that these kinds of connections is important. So we have the introductory prologue uh, it's a two-part, really two-part prologue. The first part is verses 3 through 11 of Paul's prayer to God, where God is thanked for the Philippians' financial partnership in Paul's gospel ministry. That's the big thought, the main theme. And everything else has to relate to the fact that he's encouraging them to continue to, 
in that. That's that's what he means when he gets into verse 6, and he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, and that's taken out of context. The good work is said, oh, that's salvation. No, it isn't. The good work is their participation in his ministry, in the gospel ministry, that that would continue and flourish, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So that's the beginning. He's thankful for that. He uses the word koinonia, and this is a word, we often think of it as just social interaction, and it's not. It is partnership toward a common enterprise. That's the main idea. It is something that goes beyond just having a good time together, going out and having a meal, talking with each other. And it is always biblical fellowship for the Christian is always centered around serving the Lord and and ultimately in the gospel ministry. He explains his confidence in verses 7 and 8 uh, because this is based upon God who's the one ultimately who's doing the, root, the work. And so he introduces certain sub-themes in this introduction related to the mental attitude of the growing believer and it has to be a mental attitude of humility, a mental attitude of submission to the Lord and putting God first and not me first and not putting an emphasis on what I want but on what is necessary to serve the Lord to accomplish the mission that God has for every believer in the church age and every believer in in the church. So we have to develop this mental attitude of humility. That means... Uh, it's not about me. It's always about serving the Lord. That's our goal, whatever else is going on. We have right mental attitude and second is steadfast endurance because it's not easy. In the midst of all of the challenges and all the problems in life and all of the pressures and adversity and things that are going on all, of a, all around us with parents and with kids and with work, all of these different things and responsibilities. So we have to steadfastly endure in our focus on the Word and on the Lord and walking with Him. Then God's enabling grace, which uh, enables us to continue in our labor for the gospel. And then the last one is Paul's desire for joy because he expresses the fact that he uh, his joy will be uh, will be full, and that's what that's what he desires. And we're going to see how that comes to a conclusion, sort of, in in this particular passage. And then he goes on to give a petition that their development in this partnership would be based on an informed, intelligent, discerning love. So the whole first 11 verses, they all develop that theme. Then from there we go into the second part of the prologue where it's talking about uh, he's giving evidence from his own life and talking about that and the fact that even though he is in chains, even though he's facing this adversity because he's been a prisoner, by this time it's probably three to four years and uh, he hasn't been able to go anywhere or do some of the things that he had planned to do. And so he's an example of just relaxing and trusting in the Lord. 
and he repeats some of the key ideas that are mentioned in the first part of the prologue. Then we have the section with the main message, which starts in one one twenty seven and continues down through four nine. That's the main message, and that's what we're in the middle of. So he starts off with the introduction to that, to walk worthy of the gospel, walk like a good citizen. And then he emphasizes unity, humility, and steadfastness. Unity in the body, and that can only be achieved if we're looking at it from the perspective of serving the Lord, where it's not about us, it's about the Lord. It's not about serving our interests, our plans, our agendas, the things we want to accomplish in this life. It's about serving the Lord and accomplishing what He has for us to do. So even his suffering and adversity, he, know God, he knows God's in control so he can relax under arrest and r- realize what God is doing even when that's happening. 2 1 to 4 1, after you get past the introduction to the main body, is basically walk in unity, that's chapter 2, and steadfastness, and that's chapter 3. So the focus is continues on those main ideas that in order to maintain that development of partnership in the gospel, it's going to be grounded on the unity that comes out of humility and steadfastness. So we can't have, have uh, unity if we're self-absorbed. If we're focusing on all the problems we have, we give in to self-pity, we get into all kinds of self-analysis, why is this my fault, I just think I mess everything up. You have all kinds of things. We are so self-absorbed, it's just amazing. And whenever anything happens, or some people, it's got, the first thing they think is, what did I do wrong? Well, you're not thinking biblically, you're thinking selfishly. And all of these things, so we can only only develop humility if we focus on Christ's example, and that's in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. And then from there, he focuses on the fact that we must each progress or develop in our deliverance from the power of sin. That's that verse that most people sort of misuse and misapply, uh, where uh, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, He's not talking about justification salvation. He's talking about phase two salvation, uh, salvation from the power uh, of sin in our lives. And so we have to work that out uh, and produce that by fear and trembling, pursuing unity and serving the Lord. So we looked at principles related to standing fast in the previous lessons and then because he's focusing on the end game that we lived, need to live today in light of eternity. And he expresses this because he wants to be able to rejoice uh, in the day of Christ. And that's part of the last uh, that he says in verse 16, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And so from there he's going to get into talking about himself as an example. So I want to give you a little background from another verse, one we're pretty much familiar with, from Romans 12, 1. In the 
thundering diction of the King James. It's, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. But beseech is just an, an antiquated term. We don't see too many people or hear too many people using that now. And it has the idea of imploring people, uh, strongly uh, calling upon people to pursue a certain course of action. So Paul says, I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... And it's by means of God's mercy, by means of his compassion, by means of his care for us that we are able to pursue spiritual growth, that you present your bodies, and by bodies he doesn't mean this is just your body, but by bodies he means all of us. The body contains the soul and the spirit, so it's all of us. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice set apart to the service of God. Now, if you're familiar, if you memorized it in the Old King James or New King James or New American Standard, it would say, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But holy is one of those religious words that has lost its meaning. And the more I've done word studies on this, it really doesn't have the idea, as I heard many say it when I was growing up and in seminary that it's sort of a a summary of righteousness and justice. No, it isn't. Not at all. The word kadosh in the Hebrew has the idea of something that's set apart to the service of God. The masculine noun refers to the male prostitutes in the fertility religion, and the feminine refers to the female prostitutes in the fertility religions, the worship of Baal and Asherah. So that doesn't have anything to do with righteousness and justice. What it has to do with is that they served their God. They were set apart to the service of that temple and set apart to the servants of Baal and the Asherah. So it, it has to do with something that is set apart. When it's applied to God, it has to do with the idea that he is unique and distinct. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is none like me. That's what makes him holy. He's holy in every attribute. It's one of a kind. He's holy in his sovereignty. No one has sovereignty like God has sovereignty. It is the creator-creature distinction. He is holy in his righteousness. He's holy in his justice. He's holy in his love. He's holy in his eternality. He's holy in his omniscience and his omnipotence and omnipresence. He's holy in his immutability and veracity. Because he's unique and distinct and one of a kind in each of those areas. So what Paul is saying here is that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice set apart to the service of God. Our life is a, to be a sacrifice as a believer. And there's nothing particularly special or holy about the word sacrifice. It just means that we are going to give up the desires that we have to be authentic independent of God in order to follow him and submit to his authority. So we are set apart to the service of God, acceptable to God. And then he says, which is your reasonable service. Now, these two words here that I've highlighted, sacrifice and and then uh, service or worship, are both used in Philippians 2.17. Paul says, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. So that's these two words. So it goes back to this is just fundamental Christian life principles. 
It's interesting, the more I get into the Word, the more I realize that, that most of these verses are just saying the same thing over and over again in a lot of different ways. And um, the simple way is that verses either tell you how to be justified by faith alone, or they tell you how a justified person is supposed to live. And then there's other passages that get everybody all excited because they t- tell us about what's going to happen to justified people in the future. And right now, with everything going crazy, people like to hear about that because they're hoping it's going to happen tomorrow, and I'm one of them. I hope it happens tomorrow. I hope it happens right now or tonight. You know, There's no problem that, that I face that isn't going to be solved by the rapture. I'm sure that's true for you as well. So here we are. Uh, We have these two words, sacrifice, a living sacrifice, and that it is set apart to the service of God. So we see this usage of these words in Philippians 2, uh, 17 and 18. So Paul starts off, and he's talking in these passages I underlined the wrong words. Glad, notice it says glad and rejoice in both places. What that is saying is when we're obedient to the Lord and we're fulfilling this focus on sacrifice and service, then the result is we have joy and we can share that joy with one another. We'll come back to that. But right now I want to look at these words for sacrifice and service. So the word for sacrifice is the same word in Romans 12.1, thusia. But notice you have two words linked by the word and. So if you grew up in the era of Sesame Street, it's all about conjunction, junction. And uh, sacrifice and service are connected together by the word and. But they're both then modified by the prepositional phrase of your faith. It's the sacrifice of your faith and the service of your faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a genitive of sorts that the reason we are willing to be a sacrifice to the service of God is because of our faith. We're trusting in God. It's not the faith for salvation. It's the faith for spiritual growth. It's the faith that is focused on in most of the passages in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the various Old Testament heroes and starts off by saying, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah. And in some cases, it's talking about their justification, but not always. It's talking about uh, how they did what they were supposed to do as they were living there. Uh, spiritual life. So the sacrifice and the service are both the result of their faith, and we grow from faith to faith, as Paul says at the beginning of Romans. And the result of this is that Paul is able to be glad and rejoice. And what did he say in Philippians 2.2? We look back at the beginning of this chapter. He says, If there are any of these four things in verse 1, and there are, fulfill my joy by being humble. That's what he's saying. And so when we get down to verse 17, he's just reminding us of that. He's going back to that. So we see how when something is good literature and it's written well, the interior parts all reinforce one another. 
And a lot of times the way Bible studies conducted is sometimes you just you hear people and they talk about this word and they talk about that word and this word and you lose the connectedness. You don't see the the, for, the forest because of the all the trees. Actually, you don't see the forest because all you're doing is looking at the individual cells on the leaves and the bark with a microscope and nobody ever tells you what the forest looks like. And that's very important because it helps you to properly understand what is being said. So Paul is talking about the fact that we, the Philippians, and we fulfill his joy by pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Now, that helps us connect these ideas of sacrifice and service back to a primary passage in Romans 12.1. Now I want to look at another concept that's here. Because these concepts, like sacrifice, service, they all have their roots in the Old Testament. And we have the beginning of this verse, Paul says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering. So right there you have six words to translate one word of Greek. And that word in Greek is the verb spindo, which is a present middle voice. Now, most people, when you're first learning Greek or you hear somebody teaching a basic level, middle voice would be the voice that's reciprocal. You're doing it to yourself. Like if you were to say, I'm combing my hair, you would use a middle voice. You're doing it to yourself. But it also has sort of an intensive fact to it. And here the other option would be, because the form can either be middle or passive, the passive would be that he's totally, uh, that somebody else is acting upon him. So he has no volition involved in being poured out as a sacrifice. It just would be, well, God's doing it to him whether he wants it to or not. But that's not what it's saying. It's a middle voice. He is receiving the benefit of this action, but he is making the decision that his life is to be a a drink offering. And so we have this a statement, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Now, I know that this morning when you woke up, that was one of the first things on your mind was to find out what a drink offering was today. And and this is just one word, and it it is a sort of a generic uh, generic concept. So Paul is speaking about this from the framework of looking at uh, the Old Testament. It's really more of a sort of a figure of speech that this is that's being used. But we have to understand what the literal meaning was before we can get to the present. So when we go back into the Old Testament, there are a lot of different sacrifices. And if you want to do an in-depth study of the sacrifices in Leviticus 1 through 7, then I did that when we were going through Hebrews about 12, 13 years ago. So you have two categories of these offerings. You have non-sweet savor offerings. These did not necessarily smell good. Then you have the sweet savor offerings. Now, if you drive down any street, just about any street in Houston or Texas, you're going to eventually go by a barbecue place, and you're going to smell the sweet savor of the meat being cooked. 
That's the idea. The temple was a big barbecue place. They had this big grill up there, and they were sacrificing sheep, and they were sacrificing goats and and, uh, bulls and roasting them in a, as a burnt offering. And so there was, it smelled good. So uh, the, the burnt offerings were sweet savor offerings. The drink offering was a sweet savor offering. But the non-sweet savor offerings were the sacrifices that had to do with the payment for sin, the, the uh, sin offering and the guilt or trespass offering. Sometimes it's translated guilt offering. Sometimes it's translated trespass offering. But those were the two offerings that were your non-sweet savor offerings. Then you had your sweet savor offerings. And these were offerings that portrayed the individual uh, individual believer as uh, focusing on his devotion to God. And so the burnt offering, which is the first one listed in um, in, in uh, Leviticus, Leviticus breaks them down in a not the order which they were practiced, but the order in which they developed. So you start off and with the burnt offering, everything is burned up. Everything goes up to God. And it's a picture that you're saying everything in my life is devoted to God. And then as you go through the sacrifices, then you come to other sacrifices that are shared with the priests. You have others that are shared with the priests and the one who's bringing the sacrifice. And then with some of them, the at the end, uh, the um, person who's brought it takes most of the meat home. So it all depends on what each each sacrifice is depicting. So with the burnt offering, it pictured this, everything burned up. It's a total commitment to God. It's expressing that in a total devotion to God. And then a, the order would be that you do the burnt offering, and then while it's burning up, you take um, an alcoholic beverage, uh, wine or beer, and you pour it on the offering. And if you look at the passages we look at, it's going to give the measurement of a heen, H-I-N. And a heen was basically equivalent to a gallon. So picture a gallon of milk sitting in your refrigerator. And so the first part, you'd put a quarter, quarter, quarter of a heen and some were a third of a heen. So picture a quarter milk. That's how much uh, wine or beer you're going to pour on the burnt offering while it's burning. What's that going to do? What, what happens when you pour a bunch of alcohol onto a fire? It puts it out, right? No, it flames up. And so when it flames up, it's an intensification. It's a statement of, of, uh, uh, of an intensification of this commitment and devotion to God. And it expresses the uh, desire to praise God and to give thanks to God. So it's it's a very physical and sensual presentation because your 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 senses are all involved. You're there by the altar. You're hearing it cook. You're you're watching it. You're feeling the heat. You're smelling it. All of these things are are involved in your in your worship of the Lord. Now in Numbers chapter fifteen, we have uh, a description of this. This isn't like Leviticus. 1 through 7, where it goes for, just categorizes and classifies the different offerings. 
It begins, um, speak to the children of Israel. God is speaking to Moses and giving him instructions. When you've come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, that's an olah, that's completely burned up, or a sacrifice, that's a different one, uh, to fulfill a vow, or as a free will offering, or in your appointed feast. So you're just summarizing the different categories of, of different types of sacrifices or offerings you can bring. To make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of the flock. So he's talking about that second category of sacrifices, this uh, sweet aroma. And uh, uh, then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering, or sometimes that's translated a cereal offering because he's bringing uh, wheat or corn or something like that, shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah uh, that's about a half a bushel, uh, an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a heen or a quart uh, of oil. That'd be olive oil. Don't think of the quart of motor oil that you'd buy the, and put it into your car. But it's about that size, but it would be olive oil. And what that's going to do, that's going to that's gonna catch fire too. And one-fourth of a heen or a quart of wine as a drink offering. Now, there's a couple of other passages that talk about, uh, use a different word. They use the word shakar, uh, which is translated in King James as strong drink offering. Now, I knew a pastor who used to really, I was going to use the phrase, was fond of wine, but that has a negative connotation. He was a real connoisseur of wine, an oinophile, and he really enjoyed wine, and he did not like beer at all. And so every now and then I would tease him out just, totally out of the blue, and I would say, you know, when you study the Bible, when Jesus accommodated the the tastes of the masses at the wedding at Cana, he turned the water into wine. But if you read the Old Testament, when God wants a drink offering, he wants a beer. What? Just look the word up in the Hebrew. It means barley beer. There's no evidence that we have found yet that they knew how to distill beverages in the Old Testament. So when we think of strong drink offering, we often think of a distilled beverage, which is like vodka or whiskey or rum or something like that. But they didn't know how to distill beverages. So it's either barley beer or wine. And in this case, it would be, the example is given is, is that it's uh, wine. And he says... Uh, a quart of wine is a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. So depending on what the animal was, you had different amounts of of, of um, beer or wine that you would put with the, with the sacrifice. But in this passage, you see the order. It's the burnt offering. You get it burnt. The, you get that going, and then you pour the drink offering on that. And it goes on in verse six. It. Uh, <coughs> Verse 6, it's for a ram, you should prepare a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a heen, because a ram's uh, bigger than a lamb. And so as the animal gets bigger, so does the, the amount. So that's that's what a drink offering is. The, the, the verb in Hebrew, nesek, is, is the same thing. It's translated as a libation in the, in the Vulgate from the Latin word... Um, 
labare, which means to pour out a drink offering. So you have to use four or five English words to translate that. But at the same time, you had the problem with the false religions, with the idolatry. They would do the same thing. They would have drink offerings. And so it comes down to the fact, well, well, what's going on here? Well, it depends on who you're giving the offering to and what it is. Satan is always the arch counterfeiter and is going to counterfeit anything that God does. And uh, you, can't do, uh, you can do a right thing the wrong way and with the wrong motivation. And so they were doing a pouring out a drink offering, but it had a totally different meaning within the function of the fertility uh, religions. And so there's a quote from one of the uh, documents related to Baal worship, where Baal says, pour a peace offering in the heart of the earth. So see, it's different. The drink offering was poured on the sacrifice on the altar, according to what God said, but uh, see, Baal is the god of thunder and rain and fertility of crops and everything. So he says, pour it out onto the ground, and that will bring bring fertility. Now, we know from our study of Judges that early on after the conquest, the Israelites started compromising uh, with all the paganism, and they started following the same practices. And they're condemned for that in Ezekiel. Uh, in Ezekiel twenty twenty eight, we read, When I brought them into the land, so God is speaking, when I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, that refers back to the Abrahamic covenant, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. Because they're doing drink offerings without, for the wrong reason, for the wrong motivation. There they also sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. Jeremiah also condemns them for this. He says, And the Chaldeans who fight against this city, Jerusalem, shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods. So what's the picture there? The picture there is if you're going to worship Baal, people had their own little shrine uh, to Baal up on their roof, and they would go up there and they would offer uh, sacrifices to the idol, and they would pour out drink offerings, and this, of course, provoked God to wrath. Now, Exodus chapter twenty-nine, verse forty, gives us another uh, summation of what is going on here. But before we get to that. Uh, just a reminder that we have these two categories of offerings. So you have the non-sweet savor, which relate to sacrifices that depict the payment for sin. They relate to atonement. They relate to uh, the sacrifice of the cross, picturing that. And then you have those that are uh, non are, that are the sweet savor, and those are the ones that have their particular particular order. And that's also the same thing you see in uh, Exodus 29, 40, and 41. Uh, you have the grain offering and the drink offering, which would be used or applied to the uh, sacrifice of the lamb uh, in the morning for a sweet aroma in the morning uh, sacrifice. So you had this 
specific order. You'd have the burnt offering, and then you'd have the cereal or the grain offering, and you would put that on the fire, and then a drink offering. And so that's the order you see when it's described in terms of a ritual. For example, when they're ordaining the high priest or they dedicated the temple, it was in that order. First, you have to have your sins taken care of. So there's the sin offering and the trespass offering. And then following that, there's the burnt offering, which is an expression of your dedication and commitment to the Lord. And then the grain offering and the drink offering just would intensify that. And so that is what's being pictured here. So what Paul is saying here, you know, the last uh, offering that's added to this sacrifice was the drink offering. And that shows your ultimate commitment. And so that's what Paul is saying here when he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He is talking about the fact that I am an example of one who has uh, the mind of Christ, going back to chapter 2, verse 5. I have the mind of Christ, and I am totally focused on serving the Lord and fulfilling the gospel ministry that God has given to me, and I'm being poured out like like an offering. So as we look at that, that order... We have that order of the burnt off, the, the guilt offering first, then the burnt offering, and then the drink offering, and that pictures that total focus. When Paul is about to die, see, you, you think through the chronology of the life of Paul. Paul is arrested when he's in the temple, and the Pharisees begin to accuse him of all kinds of things. They stir up a riot. The, the uh, Roman troops have to come out of the uh, Antonio Fortress and protect Paul. He's arrested as a troublemaker, but then uh, he's taken because the the uh, Pharisees and said the religious leaders want to uh, take him, and so he has appealed because of his Roman citizenship. So they take him to Caesarea by the sea, which is where the procurator, where the governor, where Pontius Pilate earlier would have been, and Festus or uh, one of the others would have lived. At, at, at this time with Paul. So he's taken down there, and he's there for two years. And then he finally, he's not getting anywhere. They're, they're, they're not going to try him. They're not going to do anything. And so he appealed to Caesar. So he gets on a ship, and he's take, he goes to Rome. There's a shipwreck on the way. Finally, he gets there. And then he's put under house arrest, and he's there for two years. And that's his first Roman imprisonment. Now, if you're listening to a liberal because uh, Acts only goes as far as the first imprisonment. It doesn't deal with the rest of his life. They will tell you that there was only one imprisonment. And there's a lot of evidence that there's actually two, that he it was freed, he left, and he uh, went to Spain. Maybe uh, there's some tradition that he may have gone to England. We're not sure. It's more maybe more tradition than fact. But then he's arrested again. He's brought back a second time. This is when he wrote Second uh, Timothy. And so he is near death. He knows that, that he'll be executed. And he says to Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. It's the exact same phrase that you have in Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. So he knows that it's at the end, and he has been consistent in his devotion to the gospel ministry. 
because in verse 7 he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. So the picture that we see in uh, Philippians 2.17 is that Paul sees his life and his ministry and everything to be analogous to that drink offering that is being poured out on the burnt offering to just bring everything to a much greater uh, dramatic end. And that is what he's talking about in relation to the dedication to the partnership of the Philippians to the gospel ministry. So their dedication is the sacrifice of service that comes from their faith. And so their faith is that sacrifice and service. And then Paul is pouring his life out on top of that. So the result is that he has joy, and he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And then he says, for the same reason, that is, that he's being poured out on their sacrifice and service of faith. For that same reason, you also be glad. And this is where he's telling them, uh, commanding them, you be glad and rejoice with me. Get your eyes off the details of life and rejoice with me over what God is accomplishing. And that's the background of this. They're still having problems. There's internal turmoils and conflict within, within the congregation. So the question that we get out of this is, do we see our lives as one that is poured out in the service of the Lord, in dedication to serving the Lord and being partners in the gospel ministry. Is that how we see our lives? Are we here to just do what we want to do and uh, accomplish the things that we want to accomplish and enjoy the things we want to enjoy? Not that there's anything inherently wrong with those things, but are we here to serve the Lord or are we here to serve our own desires? And if we're here to serve our own desires, that's, that's not humility. That's just arrogance. That's a self-absorbed life. And that's the problem with that most of us struggle with because that's the basic orientation of our sin nature. And so this takes us back to what Paul is saying at the beginning. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests to God uh, for you all with joy, for your partnership in the gospel. That is the umbrella over this whole epistle. Now, what he's going to do from this point, which I'm not going to start tonight because we have uh, these are I want to get into both of these sections. Timothy is the next example he gives of one who is completely uh, dedicated to the gospel ministry. And then Epaphroditus is the second one that will take us down to the end of chapter two. But what he says about Timothy, I'll just start with this. Paul says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now, Timothy can't go get on an airplane and and fly to uh, Philippi. He's with Paul at that point, so that's going to take time. And here's a local church that may be without a pastor, may be without a leader, but it may be two or three months before Timothy actually can get there. But he's going to send Timothy, and he says, then I may also be encouraged when I know your state so that when Timothy gets there, he can give me feedback on how you've responded to this this epistle. And then he says something about Timothy. I have no one like-minded 
who will sincerely care for your state. So you see that, that this is something that will increase in Paul's life because what he's recognizing is that there's not really anybody else that I can trust. And then he says, for they all seek their own. And that's a problem that I see so much in our culture today. Everybody is so wrapped up in whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish in this life other than what God wants them to accomplish, that this is what 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 um, Paul is bringing out. They all seek their own, everybody. They're all caught up with uh, their jobs, their careers, their education, their kids, their parents, their family. They're so totally distracted by the cares of life so that they're not going to produce any fruitfulness. This is one of the uh, pass, uh, one of the types of the soils that you have in the parable of the soils. It's the rocky soil, and they're just uh, it's it sprouts up, and then it's just choked out by the by the cares of life. When we read at when we come to Second Timothy four, Paul is at the. This is the rest of what I started reading earlier. He he tells Timothy, he says, come to me, be be diligent to come to me, quickly. First of all, Demas has forsaken me. He loved the present world. How many believers are like that? I've seen men in the ministry like that. He loved the present world. He's departed for Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Nobody's here. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now, you remember on his first missionary journey, he said, I'm not going to travel anywhere with Mark anymore. So they have hugged and made up by this point. And uh, Mark has grown up and matured because he was very, very young when he went on that first first uh, mission trip. And Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come in the books, especially the parchments. These are the scrolls of, of Scripture. So this is where Paul ends up. He's in prison, and people have either deserted him because they're too concerned with the cares of the world, or they've deserted because, or they haven't deserted, but they've gone on because they're, they're involved in ministry. So we'll come back next time, and we will look at Timothy, and Timothy's ministry, and then Epaphroditus and his ministry to look at these examples of those who are also poured out as a drink offering. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we can look at these things this evening and be challenged in our own spiritual life, that the Romans 12.1 is for us, that Paul is uh, beseeching us, he is calling upon us to make, this, make our lives a sacrifice. Uh, for service to you, that we are to be a living sacrifice. We are to forego the personal pleasures, seeking our own desires and everything in order to serve you in the, in the ministry. And that, that doesn't mean that we're not in a secular, a secular uh, career or business, but that what comes first is always that relationship with you and understanding our walk with you and that we're all in full-time Christian service. So, Father, we pray that we would be challenged by what we're learning here and that this would come to be our focus and our purpose as we live our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.